0: Hello, and welcome to the Security Times Privacy Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Bob Gaines. Bob, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. My name is Bob Gaines. I'm the Director of Cybersecurity and Privacy Advisory for PKF O'Connell Davies.
0: Nice. And tell us more about what your company does.
1: So we're primarily a, a tax advisory firm. So they're essentially an umbrella organization 140 different countries. They primarily primarily focus on tax and the advisory section is where I fall in. So advisory sections vary from legal to financial advice as far as regulatory compliance. And then I'm in the kind of security element of things. So my team primarily does security advisory, primarily mostly for regulatory requirements, as well as I also lead the digital forensics and instant response group. When something goes horribly bad with your security program, I'm part of the team that helps you mitigate security breaches, hacks, and ransomware.
0: Oh, wow. And obviously, we, d- we don't want to get into the specifics, but what are some of the or threats facing businesses these days that previously didn't exist?
1: Well, a lot of it, As we've moved away from the brick and mortar environment, especially during COVID, everybody's working from home. And so that kind of changes the footprint. And so I think every CISO and CIO and CTO is worried about where the boundaries are, the digital boundaries of the organization where your data is, how it's being protected. And so if you're in a situation where you've only just unlocked a VPN and everybody in the organization can access all of the company's data from anywhere, you have a significant problem. So these kind of digital boundaries is probably the biggest change of things. And so you do things like encryption, limiting data where it's located. So you're accessing via, via virtual desktops instead. So the data is still residing locally, but not or locally to the company, but not in the user's workstation or laptop, or you modify how you control things. But each of these approaches changes your threat profile, it exposes you to things like ransomware or business email compromise or account takeover, depending on how things are configured. And then your reaction is now of course different because you can't just walk down the hallway and unplug a computer and do your instant response. Now you have to deal with somebody maybe working remotely in Chicago or Spain. And each of those changes how you approach things and how you control things and how you protect things.
0: Mm-hmm. Are, have you heard of any breaches in the news recently? And can you tell us about what what's going on right now in the security world in terms of responding to the maybe newer threats out there?
1: So a lot of right now is variations on a the theme. So we still see a lot of ransomware. That's still the big one out there. And as I mentioned, exposure is probably a little bit higher because of all the remote workers because a lot of times they're blending their personal emails with their work emails or their personal computer usage. So they may be exposed to mob or malicious links may be coming in through their personal Gmail or Google accounts where the company can't protect those. And so they'll get ransomware on their local systems and infect the corporate environment. But ransomware is still, I think, the predominant thing we see on a regular basis. And a lot of organizations have been hit just as before. The numbers haven't changed really. And the second one is we call business email compromise, and that's into an advanced form of phishing, where the bad guys get it into your environment primarily for the financial services area. They'll do spear phishing to target like your CFO, or your marketing department, or someone in accounts payable, and they'll try and either reroute how your company pays things, or reroute how your vendors are paying. So they'll take over your account, pretend to be you, mask communications, and then send out things like account wiring information. They'll change that so that people will pay the bad guys instead of themselves. Mm. However, we are seeing a different change these days where they'll get into the environment for HR and they'll reroute payroll information. So several organizations were hit just recently with that.
0: Wow. Wow. Have you heard about or do you know if this is happening, having an AI system monitoring your activity your company's activity maybe to identify threats like this when they happen is that being utilized right now in the security industry or is it still a little bit too new
1: now we're already seeing a lot of ai is definitely being leveraged where possible we're already seeing a lot of organizations picking up on this whether or not it's the primary feature or it's a a new addition but the concept here is heuristics. there's always been not always but it's a newer trend which a lot of people are, are adopting and ai makes it a lot easier and the concept is looking for behavioral changes which is a fantastic approach so instead of looking for pattern-based things in malware which is difficult because malware changes daily there's 500 million different variants on a regular basis and they change constantly they're polymorphic so you can't just have a pattern so we're looking for his behavior so somebody who always works from chicago all of a sudden is logging in from helsinki or spain or whatever so it flags that, and then also flags different things, like, okay, they're working from Chicago, so we're seeing a login from Indiana, which is nearby, so maybe they're working, so it's not enough to flag a geolocation thing, but they're logging at 3 a.m., and mm-hmm. they're doing things they normally don't do. And so the heuristics will flag those type of behaviors. And, and of course, AI is fantastic at reading a lot of information and looking for patterns. So it'll look for things not only for that one user, but perhaps across the company looking for patterns that look for malware or malicious behavior. So I think AI is going to be a fantastic addition to people who are looking to properly defend their organization from a pattern-based or high-risk-based element.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. The cat-and-mouse game of security is great in terms of, I think, job security or career security because I don't think it's ever going to be done. I think the security industry will continue to evolve with the the criminal elements that are, seek to evolve as well, like both parties will continue to evolve.
1: Absolutely, because AI is being used by the bad guys as well. They're looking for how to do large data sets, You know, looking for vulnerabilities because they're scanning um, external IPs on a regular basis. They're looking for holes, um, but they're also looking for people who post, um, you know, or reuse their uh, passwords in various areas. And of course you have a, a breach here They'll capture and scrape passwords, and they'll use AI to find, okay, which of these passwords is the more obvious one to get in. And they use brute force attacks or other types of password attacks to try and get into systems. And we've seen those also. We don't know if AI is behind it, but we've had multiple breaches we've investigated where the assumption is they've gotten in via brute force attack or some sort of account reuse attack.
0: Wow. So if somebody wants to enter into the security industry, how do you recommend that they learn more about it.
1: Fortunately, there is a ton of free stuff out there. So I think anybody with an interest or an acumen really can spend some time on their own, just beefing up their basic knowledge skills. But really the the key element is knowing how things work together. How does activity on a workstation interact with a server? How do you communicate from your workstation to the cloud? Knowing how all these things work is the first step. And then from there, security is picking your your path. So it's a kitchen. So you have breakfast, lunch, dinner, you have people who serve, you have people who make things, you have people who support people who make things. And imagine security being all those things in different areas. So you can specialize in workstation security, you can specialize in perimeter security, firewalls, AI defenses, you can do penetration testing, you can do things like specialize in securing your web environment, all these different areas. I think as you progress down a certain path You figure out what you're good at, what you enjoy, and then what the opportunities are. Because when I first started doing this ages ago, the security guy had to be the jack of all trades because there wasn't many specializations back there. And then eventually you said, oh, you do pen testing and then you do defending. You have the red team, blue team approach. And then everything kind of melded from there as everything moved to the web. And then you had virtualization and then you have micro virtualization and then mobility. So all these various things are different areas where you can specialize in. But the first thing is just getting the basic knowledge. And then there's a lot of certifications out there that aren't very expensive. Start with your general a certification, which is like, yeah, I understand how computers work. But Security-plus is probably the next logical step, which essentially demonstrates your ability to understand security concepts and how they apply to various things. And then from there, choose your specialty as you go.
0: And do you have any books that you read or anybody you follow online to keep up with the latest trends? I imagine it's a rapidly evolving industry. So how, how do you keep up with what's going on?
1: It's all over the place. I have, I'm constantly doing new certifications. I'm on, my CISA is the next on the horizon. I just finished my open source intelligence one. So it's, you're learning new things and each of those things opens new avenues. I'm constantly on LinkedIn. That's probably a great approach for professionals. They see who's doing what. A lot of organizations will post a lot of their data up there. At the same time, it's keep an eye on what's new. So subscribe to as many of these security emails as possible. And then eventually you get a pattern of what kind of feeds your interest. And some of them are more current, some of them are more kind of summary. There's so much good threat intel out there. I can't just really pick one. But yeah, you just read, absorb as much as possible. What I normally do is just a cup of coffee in the morning, spend at least 15 minutes going through the headlines, going through who's doing what, and then take it from there. And then I find at some point in time, every time I have an investigation, I always have to do more research, which exposes me to more information also, because you have to yeah. be up to date. What is the threat vector du jour relative to these type of threats? And then we incorporate that into our threat intelligence for the reports as well.
0: So if you were to give advice to businesses for staying secure, I think one one thing I heard recently was not to click on links from social media somebody had said that and i thought that was interesting i hadn't heard that before is there anything else that you recommend or Uh, or do you recommend that even
1: there's a million different things the difficulty with don't click links is everything is link based these days everything is online like these days when we get contracts they're not sending us the physical contract anymore they're they're giving us a link to secure site. And then we do the contracts. You can't just say don't click links because all of a sudden I can't do my business. It's everything's layered. You have to, you have to start with the human, you have to train them appropriately to be able to identify what is a phishing email, wh- what appears be a malicious link. At least at the minimum make the mouse hover over the link and does the url that's exposed look legitimate? If you're a, looking for a Gartner report and it says gartner.com and gibberish, okay that's better but if you're expecting Gartner and it's edsurpluswarehouse.com and then gibberish, that's probably a malicious link. So that's the basics. So start with the human, train them appropriately. But humans are infallible creatures. And then layer security. So there's plenty of email based security that will trick the links as you get them or defang them, high based antivirus layers. But there is no, no smoking gun, unfortunately, that kind of, or silver bullet that solves the problem. But start with the mm-hmm. human and work from there and then sure you have layer security. But when we talk about businesses in general, what we normally do is start with risk. What is the most, where's your keys of the kingdom? How important is that? And then we work backwards as far as determining the risk of the organization and then align your security posture relative to that. Some organizations don't really care about a lot of things, so we don't have a lot of data to protect. And others are or super concerned, not only with security regulations, but with the appearance of impropriety. So that kind of risk-based element they're really concerned about.
0: Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the, the most value, because that makes sense, right? Like the bank has the vault with all the money in it because the money is what the people want and businesses, it's information a lot of the time, maybe it's money as well. With this information, they're trying to guard, let's say consumer data or something like that how do you ensure that consumer data is protected as a business? Is it, if I were starting a business that I wanted to protect consumer data with, is that, what does that look like? Is it hiring a consultant to do the security aspect or a CISO? Or what does it look like for a business owner to protect that, those jewels?
1: A lot of it starts at what is the data? Where does it reside? And how can you control it relative to that? So say, for example, you're just, You're a company that does, say, for example, you process medical billing. That's common. Lots of businesses do that. You have HIPAA data. It's regulated. It requires you to have certain protections in place. And the nice thing about a lot of these regulations is they will give you a list of some basic, to do this, you have to meet these 10 minimal qualifications. And those are things like the database that goes in has to be encrypted, the hard drive that is on, on the server has to be encrypted as well, both at rest and in motion. And then you have to have security controls like a strong password, make sure people don't share accounts or share passwords. And so there's a litany of things to do. But ultimately, it boils down into where it resides, how it's utilized, and then what controls can you put in place. Mm-hmm. Going back to the billing thing, if it's a database and your database is encrypted and you have users accessing it via, say, for example, a web interface. You want to make sure the web interface is up to date, it's coded appropriately, that the users accessing it are coming from a secure workstation, so some controls around the security of that, and then things like ensuring that you can't copy the data or transport it. So say, for example, if you can copy the data for medical transcriptions, so you copy it, so it's now where? Is it on the user's workstation? Is it in the email? So you have to control where that goes, because a lot of people will then put it somewhere and then they'll email it off. So, okay, that's not secure anymore. So the email has to be encrypted. Is it automatic encryption? Is it user-based encryption? So each of the steps has to be analyzed. And so what we normally require, or we recommend is what we call data flow diagram. So a massive map of your organization of where the data goes from inception to completion. So the completion may be your vendor or maybe your end user or whatever. So all along the way, you have to map, all the various controls and looking for places where it's either done automated or done via a manual process and where possible automate, because remember humans aren't the most intelligent creatures on the earth automation is fantastic and then check it. And so it gets audited on a regular basis, but the concept is each way along the way, there's security controls to make sure their data is protected. It's never just one, it's yeah. always eight or nine overlapping elements and you test it. So have a red team. So someone with the penetration testing ability, someone who thinks like a hacker, have them actually test it out, make sure all your controls are appropriate, and then test, retest, lather, rinse, repeat.
0: Do you think in the future, AI will outpace our human ability to protect our systems and to break into systems? Will AI basically just start playing the game at another level where we now need the AI to step in for us to, to defend us.
1: I don't think so. There's an element to play. It definitely makes our job a lot easier in one aspect where we use AI to crunch a lot of data, but it also makes it difficult because AI could be also used against us. But the human element is really important because like you see these pictures, my favorite is the picture of AI based art and oh, that's a beautiful tree. Oh, that bird looks so realistic. And there's the one of the salmon floating up the river and it's like, salmon fillets you know, like you see in the, in the um, grocery yeah. store so ai doesn't always get it right and it's it also doesn't have the ability to do lateral thinking for the most part it's very binary it, it's garbage in garbage out and so it hasn't at this point reached the ability where it can make leaps of logic around various elements where humans can so we could point in the right direction and have it do yeah every exploit under the sun against something faster than any human can do and so there's a time element or a compression element But at the same time, it doesn't fully understand the mechanics of things. At the same time, ultimately, it's the human has to understand things. So as we use AI as a tool, both for attack and defend, we have to be able to understand. So if I'm using AI to attack, I still have to interpret the data. I still have to understand what it's doing. So just because it found a hole, I still have to understand how it works. So there's an analysis that goes behind things. There's always a human piece involved. So at this point, I'm not worried about... From a Defender point of view, I'm I'm worried about just make sure that my job is good for today. But as an industry, I'm not really worried about it. I think it's going to be an enhancement to what we do. It'll be a pain in the butt for a lot of things as a Defender. But in general, it would be a fantastic tool when it comes to validating systems. Because, yeah, I can run AI against the whole data flow diagram and quickly it'll find issues. But then I still have to interpret the data and I have to then provide that data to the end user, the business owner who doesn't have a PhD in computer science, who doesn't understand really what a data flow diagram is or what it does, and doesn't really understand risk. And so we have to, as human beings, interpret all that to make sure they understand the complex elements in such a way that they understand them.
0: Wow. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's good news for the security industry. I think um, so. I th- yeah, it's AI is a good thing ultimately because it enhances our productivity and gives us more time to do, I think, more important work. And I think it's definitely going to come with an adjustment period that's going to be rough because this is a new model and we were not warned about it. I wish they'd warned us like 15 years ago. By the way, all of this repetitive tasks you're doing, try not to make that the center of your life because there's gonna be this technology that comes in to help us with that. Focus on the other things. We didn't get any such warning. It just showed up out of nowhere. Like Bitcoin, where we you're like, what? <laughs> like, how did that just show up? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> it's a game changer for certain. But automation has always been the key for so many things. Back when the mechanical Turk, these machines from the mid-ages were designed to make simple tasks easier. So everybody's always looking for a better way. It just, we didn't think it'd be AI at this speed. Hmm. Exactly. A lot of my data involves, a lot of my day involves crunching a lot of information. And so mm-hmm. we're definitely looking forward to our own company. We are installing or looking at AI based systems and tools to make these a lot easier, how to analyze large data sets. And once we have that fully implemented, it'll definitely make my job a lot easier. And then I can move on yeah. to more complex projects.
0: Yeah. What are some future innovations or developments that you expect to see in the security and privacy world?
1: Automation will definitely make our jobs as auditors a lot easier. Um, so we already right now have a lot of you know, network scanning tools, your vulnerability assessment type stuff, um, even penetration tools. These days are fairly automated. You give it your parameters, let it run, and then you do your analysis and validate things. And then you do the more advanced hacking, poking, prodding type things. But I think as auditors, it'd be the ability to just think, okay, we're going to plop this device on your network, have it gather the information that we need, or you can provide the information we need but quickly come to a solution when it comes to something that can be quantifiable. So when we do audits, you have quantifiable and, and quantitative type of elements. Is this the stuff that we want numbers for and this stuff that requires the analysis. And the number stuff is very time consuming. And so I think it'd be fantastic to take that element. And then the qualitative element, it enhances what we can do by gathering the right type of data. And then we as humans can then analyze it from a quality perspective Ensuring that you've met the various elements, but you definitely push this stuff along, provide you with what you're looking for faster, because there's nothing worse than seeing an environment, trying to figure out what's going on. That situational awareness takes a while as an auditing organization or, or even as an attacker uh, or a defender. But if AI can provide that visibility rather rapidly and quickly and effectively, and most importantly, what is the completeness of it? Can it gather all of the data or just a subset? then we as auditors and examiners can make a more intelligent approach to risk, the danger of your organization, gaps, etc.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. I'm wondering about the, the future of data and if it will ever be stored on something like an encrypted blockchain where everybody has access to some very... Maybe like a, there's like a public layer where, so here, let me step back a little bit more. Sure. Right now, walled gardens like Facebook or Twitter or any of the social medias, they keep their data in. And I have a personal viewpoint that a lot of the privacy regulation is actually intended to, to protect the profit of the profits and the revenue streams of these large companies of the walled gardens. Yep by keeping the data in. If they have to share the data out, they lose a little bit of that, the power they have to charge everybody for to access to this data and so forth. I think it's possible that in the future there will be some regulation that opens up, that, that basically breaks down the walled garden, but does so in a privacy-safe way. I don't know if that's possible. That's what I'm curious uh, for your perspective on. Is it possible? Is there any reality where we can have some level of public data available but protecting people's identities or is that inherently unsafe because if it's cracked then all the data is already out there how do you approach that kind of a situation where data is currently being held privately maybe it will be released publicly but what needs to happen for that to happen can it happen
1: yeah that's a good question i think it can happen there's already a lot of controls in place segmenting private and public and a lot of like the iap organization specializes in privacy regulatory controls and so what a lot of times you have is these situations where instead of like you could mask the data you get you know, get anonymous in various elements anonymous and anonymous subsets but at the same time you have a distance your reference so you know on like, like pci is a great example it's all this credit card data the public element is a small key that key then goes to PCI, and then if you're authorized, there is more data available, credit card data, billing, human beings, etc. So all that PCI data is protected. And they've been around for a long time, very effective. It's not a government regulation. It's an industry-based regulation, but it's so effective that everybody adopts it. So it's a situation where the industry itself says, hey, let's crack this code on our own so nobody's mucking around with what's going on. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a situation where you can effectively have that, where you're the public-facing element, like blockchain, is a token. The token represents this element. And based off of your transaction, you may have access uh, to more information based off of the the availability of your security token. So I think it, it can be interchanged that way. And I think the immutability of blockchain makes things a lot easier when it comes to ensuring the data is protected appropriately and it's not being modified for nefarious purposes. Now, whether or not large organizations are gonna allow a certain degree of stuff relative to finances, that's a different thing. But it wouldn't surprise me if they say, for example, the government has the security token enable, enabling those access things so they can then bill or charge or regulate or oversee various things. I think there's a space to play. And a lot of organizations are looking at internal blockchain uh, controls for a significant number of things. Not only smart contracts, but internal tokens for projects where this token represents the output, in, and it's immutable It's a blockchain, so it can't be modified. And the one advantage of that is that if it's a smart contract built into your token, and then you can remove like a business email compromise type of attack, because the token has the defined elements. I will do this out in these terms, and you pay me under these terms. It's immutable, you cannot change it, it's been agreed. But we have seen problems with early tokens where they've entered the data wrong, and human error still makes problems to be had along the way. And then hilarity sue it. But it's one of the situations where I think there is a place to play. And I think blockchain is a good way to start. We already have known mechanisms in place. There's plenty of encryption, but the issue, it has a public image issue with a large subset of, of, of humans, not just because of all the crypto hacks and whatnot, but I think they ultimately don't fully understand it. And so there's some, definitely a education gap that needs to go on. Like with AI, like with so many other things, it may just pop up and it may be something we're like, something we need to adopt on our own because we're forced to.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I love the connection you drew to how transaction data is protected and how the industry built its own solution for sharing that data, but not sharing all of it, just enough in a a safe way to maybe identify or distinguish between people. That's really interesting. I think it will definitely follow a similar path.
1: I think so. And I think the reason is because right now, especially with blockchain, there are 130 different regulations relative to what's going on. And if you even look at cryptocurrency, not everybody even sees it as currency. It's been outlawed in some areas, even blockchain is outlawed in some areas. And so I think if the industry itself is the one who develops this and proves its applicability, That's going to be the best solution. Otherwise, we have is, like with regulatory controls right now, you have the EU standard, you have the U.S. standard, you have the Asia-Pacific standard, and then everything else in between. And that doesn't work well. Whereas PCI, Visa, MasterCard, hey, let's let's take care of this before somebody else does. And it works so well that everybody's adopted it. So nobody questions it per se. It gets audited, gets checked on a regular basis, but nobody changes it. So I think it's, for example, if somebody has a new say so for example a new version of PayPal for businesses on a large scale using a blockchain technology. If they develop it and they prove that it works, I think that's going to be a fantastic way of implementing this as opposed to waiting for the organiz- the governments to push something along. Instead provide that we can do this securely using our methodologies and then you can change your regulations to align with what we're doing.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. You got you have me thinking about systems that we use, because uh, c- in, in many ways, the human mind and the, our collective minds, they work together in a similar fashion to how a blockchain system has an agreed upon ledger. And we all agree on a lot of common data points uh, with each other. And just like a blockchain, if you can convince a substantial majority of the data points of a different reality you can actually hack the system right that's like the so that's interesting the parallel with people and how if you can convince enough people of something then you can change reality in a sense Correct. and it's a similar hack true and we- it at least i guess the only question out of that is do you think that we'll have security tools or some kind of tools in place to help us with that kind of an attack on us if there's a lie?
1: Yeah, in the security parlance, we call it hack the human. You invest a billion dollars in your security infrastructure, but if Judy in accounting is the one who uh, can't help but click links and open attachments, then she is the missing or the, the link in your chain. And there's Books about hack the human. That's a common thing at sans. It's a fantastic approach because don't forget the human element. It'll bypass all these security controls. But yeah, we've seen misinformation is a massive element, not only for civilian, but also warfare purposes. And so what happens if all of your battle commanders are looking at the wrong data and don't believe things and they're making decisions, but we're inundated by people who, you know, either want to, or, or intentionally are designing misinformation amongst various things. and As the human blockchain, yeah, we see information, we validate, pass it on. I see it as a major threat to so many things. And I think AI has ability to help, but it, I think it's limited. Because human beings don't respond to data. We don't like facts and figures. If you have an opinion, what, what, I can't remember the... There's a psychology. I have, a, I have an informed opinion, and if somebody gives me something contrary to it, I will actually double down on my opinion. I don't care what your facts say or who says it. And we've seen this, where an expert comes out saying, "If you do X, Y, and Z, if you drink milk that's been in the sun for six weeks, you're going to get sick." Oh no! And then he'll go out and intentionally do it. That's the human being. And AI is just going to stick around, going, "Wow, I really am more intelligent <laughs> than human beings." so i think it's just underscore the intelligence of machines more than humans but i think it if used at the individual level it might help i think use as a larger area i think there's too many people who have an embedded need to control that would definitely leverage it for malicious purposes more than benefit of humanity we're looking at george orwell type control of data is what ultimately it comes down to
0: yeah and i think one this is positive is that I think AI has poisoned the well of objective truth. And What I mean is now that we can use AI to deepfake, for instance, completely manufacture videos to the point where it, you can't tell the difference. Sure. And, and, or like this, unfortunately, these fake hostage calls using the kids' voices to the parents. Yes. We are now learning to not really trust anything we see, digitally at least, and we have to use critical thinking to navigate through. Did this person really say this? Did this Joe Rogan podcast actually happen? And I think that's a good thing for us as people to have an an additional layer, almost a security layer of, does this make sense or is this being fed to me for me to have a particular reaction to it? So that, I think that's an interesting piece, too, that it's almost helping through its malicious use. It's teaching us a really important lesson on how to defend ourselves.
1: But not everybody's learning the lesson. But it is, it, to your point, I think it is a good way to ensure that we're skeptical of everything we see. And I think eight years ago, we took every visual image we saw as fact. Everything we saw on TV is fact. Now, people at least have an understanding they could be fake. And the question is, are they going to choose to be fake or is it going to already feed into their echo chamber and that's my concern is when you're in an echo chamber you don't about that you trust it i trust joe joe gives me this stuff on a regular basis then joe shows me a picture of something and sets me off and i forward it to other people in the echo chamber it sets them off because they don't have the critical thing they've they've bypassed it the trust level has already been taken care of so i'd rather see is something. You talk about the effective use of blockchain is nothing goes out unless it's been validated in some capacity. Every piece of picture has a blockchain element on it, a key token that can be recalled or sourced, like where did it come from? Oh, it came from a farm in Ukraine or brought us. So you can say, oh, this is interesting. Where did this picture come from? Because I love is when you, if you go to some random website, like for news and you scroll to the bottom and there's, oh. This doctor says eating these five things a day will ensure that you lose weight. No, it doesn't work that way. But I would love to go, who published this? Where did it come from? Has this been fact? So that element of blockchain, and AI can help with that perhaps, would be fantastic when it comes to validating things when you want to learn the truth, when you want to break these things down. Because when you see, say for example, oh, terrorist attack, whatever. Oh, your first reaction is like, ah, this is horrible, I can forward to all my friends. But if you go, oh, this came from, what is the name of this organization? I have no idea. <laughs> and you can drill down like email headers. I can get data. I do forensics on various things, but there's almost so much you could do. But to, to be able to fact check things rapidly, I think chain AI might actually be useful for that.
0: It's so interesting to think about how information flows between people and how it's how it needs to be protected and also how it will change in the future because right now we it's just so new. What, what are some maybe like as you look into the future relative to privacy regulations, I think a lot of people are saying that U.S. is going to catch up to the EU. But where's the EU going? Where, where are we going relative to these privacy regulations? Is it going to continue to be a, t- a, a tighter box, a, a better locked box? Or what does it look like?
1: I think ultimately, if we look at the EU model, which we're approaching, the concept is the, the end user has more control over their data. Where it goes, who does it opt in, opt out. And then can I physically have it or I can be, can I be forgotten on the internet? Cause there's so much data out there. The difficulty is data lakes. We're looking at not we're even past the petabyte a day type thing. I, mean, I don't know what the number is these days, how much data is out there relative to privacy, but the concept would be, be, I get all these stupid things from MasterCard. It's like, I don't want to be in this anymore, but not only that is like, what do you have on me? Can you just delete all of it in? in They'll say no, but if I'm in Germany, not only can I find out what they have on me, but what they've been doing with it. Where does it go? And that's very useful. And a lot of the EU thing also is if I've opted into say, for example, a podcast and that person tries to sell my data off, like they can't without my permission, I get called like December was a fantastic year month for people calling me and looking for new business. And oh, is this so-and-so? Yes. Oh, we're looking to sell those things. I don't do that anymore. Like. What email do you have? And they'll mention some company. I was like, like eight years ago. It's like, oh, clearly bought a list and the list has all my data on it, but it doesn't have my proper title, doesn't have my proper company. It just has my phone number and my name. If I was in the EU, that wouldn't happen because I could opt out of these things. Even ask the person, where did you get my information? Can you delete it? And then also find out who sent it and then, you know, get more information from there. So it gives me a lot of control over it. I'm not sure the US is going to be quite as much, because there's companies like to store data, they like to sell it. Data brokers make billions of dollars on a regular basis. So their job is much more difficult if people can opt in and out.
0: Yeah, and, and I think I'm a, a bit critical of the, the state of the data industry, the data market in the US, because from my perspective, I'm in the ad, advertising marketing world there's a lot of snake oil being sold because these audiences are shrouded under the guise of privacy. That's why we can't share. Not because this portion of it is fake and maybe bot-driven traffic or whatnot, but rather because it's caring for the privacy of the people. And I think that's where the opportunity lies to innovate, is how do we differentiate between the snake oil and the honest data without compromising privacy. And uh, th- I think that's, there's a big solution hidden in there. Yeah. But,
1: yeah. And this for businesses, what we always recommend is it's important to contract Encrypt it. send it via encrypted or, or certified as well. So you can get a certificate for free, you fill out your information. And then when you interact with somebody, they get the other key and they can certify that all emails are you. It's a fantastic way of ensuring that your communications are designated as me. If it's encrypted then i can control where it goes and then depending on my solution i can even delete it i can say this email is good for 14 days and then after 14 days you can't see it anymore which is good and bad because there's plenty of times where all somebody sends me something and then i go oh i forgot some details and you go back to the original one it, of course it's been deleted and there's even ones where you, you literally can't you know copy and paste it's just literally there it's just text only and it deletes itself after a period of time so all you can do is perhaps screenshot it but there's even solutions against that. There are some good things out there, and the key is just what are you trying to ensure the privacy of? Keys of the kingdom, so your important data, there's multiple ways of ensuring that. But also, I get 140 emails a day on my work account. I get 500 a day on my personal account. I'm not gonna read all those that are encrypted. Most of them are just garbage anyway, but, but it's data, and some of it has my personal stuff in it also. And so, it's difficult as a human to control all these things, like where all my personal stuff goes. But there's solutions out there, It's like LastPass, all these say, key places are great ways to store your passwords, but I think there's slowly gonna be situations where you're gonna have a certificate or a blockchain wallet or something that has your stuff, and then it's what people use. Almost like your QR code, which I hate, that type of solution. Here's me, and then all this important data is protected, and then you can only access it if your protections have been matched. You can prove that your company has met these agreements, you're certified, and then you can see my stuff, so that's a great way, and that's what PCI does to some degree. But I, th- I think something similar to that, where you're going to have your own little personal token, and that token mm-hmm. is going to be within your jurisdiction. You'll get alerted if somebody accesses it, and then people can only access it if they've met their certain controls or they've certified themselves or you've authorized them, like a blockchain. Instead of Bitcoin, I'm giving my my health data. Instead of my Bitcoin, I'm giving my banking data or my passport data. All of it's encapsulated within this type of stuff. And I see that as a, as a viable solution down the line. But also I could see fraud all over the place as well.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the, I think that's the kind of the plan is to have a C, the CBDCs, Central Bank Digital Currencies, and we all get a wallet. And I think that's where then, because I, I think China already has something similar, like these super apps. Sure. But the, we would have one from the government ostensibly
1: yeah. the, the WeChat controls everything. So it's your phone, it's your text, it's your banking app. It's how you pay for things. Last time I was in Beijing, waiting the buy line to buy dumplings and everybody's just scan the QR code. And then so they're like paying with my currency and looking like an idiot, but I can't get WeChat because I'm not, I don't have a bank oh. in China. And that's the key is that's the, if have to have a bank in China to be sponsored by somebody to get a WeChat account. And so, but that's how they control, but also there's good and bad because then big brother's watching all of your transactions. And so then you'll see a situation where you can have this black market of things because not everybody wants their purchases to be known, or their vices and all these other things. And so there's always going to be some sort of secondary element. Just that's how human beings function, unfortunately. So you need to create something that doesn't disincentivize people who want to be private or want to mask things. So it's a, definitely gonna be a balance there.
0: Yeah, that, that is really interesting. It can be abused. There's something about cash that be, be, it promotes freedom.
1: Even from a social perspective, imagine if you had a device that essentially told everybody if you're vaccinated for COVID or not. So I don't think it'd be as, as concerned now, but three years ago, I think it would completely blow people's minds. And that would immediately polarize people because that's a privacy element and it, it becomes a policy element all of a sudden. It becomes a polarizing policy element. And so I think that'd be the unexpected outcomes of something like this. I could definitely see something like that, where down the line, oh, you're using a gas-burning car? Why aren't you using this? Like, you killed trees. There's a million different things that people can get wound up about that may be immutable on this thing that shows everybody, then all of a sudden, you're weighing a red A, walking down the thousands of people beating each behind you. So mm. there's definitely a thin line to draw, or even a thick line on a lot of these things when it comes to what you do on a store, what can be publicly available and accessed.
0: Yeah. Wow. This is so interesting. Final question. Who in the security industry inspires you? Is there anybody in history who is particularly notable or anybody who you look up to in
1: this area? Hard to say. I read a lot. I don't, I don't try and religiously follow one individual. I, I think probably the biggest one, probably Bruce Schneider. I've read, most of his books, I've met him several times. He's a pioneer way back when, still around. Last time I saw him was maybe six months ago, Carleton College, just south of here giving a lecture. Fantastic guy, fantastic ability to predict ahead. And, so, and I think what we need is a lot of more leaders who are like that. who can say, okay, here's where we're at. And here's where I think we'll be based off of my experiences and whatnot, but not only just experiences, but just basically he's been consuming. And he's a voracious consumer of information. I don't know how he gets the time to read as much as he has. But he also is good at digesting a lot of it for the layperson. I think probably the best person in that area. But other areas, I think I'm still casting around for a lot of stuff. I think in general, the security world is short of mentors. And I think everybody needs one to help them guide along the path. And so it's one of those elements where there's a lot of opportunity out there. But there's also a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of environments that change. And so if you're a person who is embedded in the physical world, physical servers, physical switches, physical this and that, you're going to have a hard time five years from now. You have a hard time even holding a job for the next five months, probably, if, if, if you don't even believe in virtualization of various things in the cloud. You need that person that kind of helps guide you along the way and steer you, answer questions. I definitely would think we're short on that.
0: That makes a lot of sense. It's a new industry, it's, and it's rapidly evolving. Thank you for being a big player in it and for sharing your thoughts today.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: Awesome. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.